1: Hey, this is Philip Stutz, author of Fire Them Now, The Seven Lies Digital Marketers Sell, and the truth about political strategies that help businesses win. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas
0: Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas in order to succeed in the quickly changing field of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction direction. This show is produced by my marketing firm. We work with manufacturers to help them grow. If you're a manufacturer and are serious about growing your business, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide at the top of the organic results. And special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Blinkist. Blinkist is a really cool app that takes the Key insights from the best nonfiction books and distills them into a format that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes on your smartphone. Several of the books featured on the Marketing Book Podcast are on Blinkist. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer for Marketing Book Podcast listeners, where you can sign up for free at Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast. Blinkist is spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, and if you opt for the paid version, you'll get an additional 20% off, but only if you go to Blinkist.com slash Marketing Book Podcast, or just click on the link at MarketingBookPodcast.com. And now, on with the show! Today, we welcome Philip Stutz to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Fire Them Now, The Seven Lies Digital Marketers Sell and the Truth About Political Strategies That Help Businesses Win, published by Lioncrest. With more than 20 years of political and marketing experience, Philip Stutz has worked with multiple Fortune 200 companies, has over two decades of experience working on campaigns with Billions of dollars in political ad spend and contributed to over 1,200 election victories, including hundreds of U.S. House campaigns, dozens of U.S. Senate campaigns, and even three U.S. presidential victories. He is the founder and executive chairman of Go Big Media, a political media firm, and the founder and CEO of Win. Big Media, which is a corporate marketing agency. In addition to being a keynote speaker, Philip has more than 200 national TV appearances, including ESPN, Fox News, Fox Business, MSNBC, and CNN. And he has appeared on some of the world's most popular podcasts, including Gary Vaynerchuk's The Daily V, The James Altucher Show, The Adam Carolla Show, and The Dr. Drew Podcast and he has been lauded as a marketing genius by Fox Business, the political guru by ESPN, and the Michael Jordan of political marketing by Mike Dillard. And interesting fact, he is the first guest on the Marketing Book podcast who is a graduate of the University of Alabama. Roll Tide, Philip. Congratulations on Fire Them Now and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
1: Roll Tide.
0: Roll tide.
1: <laughs> that's what you always say back. That's like. right. That's right. Okay. So now um, roll tide means thank you. How you doing? It, you know, in the South in America, and you know, if you're an Alabama graduate, you just say roll tide, and it's ubiquitous to anything. So roll tide.
0: Okay. Yeah. Word. So <laughs> you are from? You were born uh, in Alabama, right? In Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Well, I was born in uh, L.A. Uh oh,
1: lower Alabama,
0: lower Alabama. That's right. Yes. yes. So, uh, well. there you go. I was born on an army post in, uh, in, uh, southeastern Alabama called Fort Rucker. My dad was in the army, but, uh, you know, there you go. We've got that. Uh, we've got that in common. And now that we've established that you're an Alabama grad, um, Philip, I hate to break it to you, we've probably lost all the Auburn, uh, Clemson, and uh, Georgia fans that uh, regularly listen to the Marketing Book Podcast.
1: Thank God. Well, now we can really start.
0: <laughs> That's, in fact, let's just talk about them for the rest of the show. <laughs>
1: sure, I'm sure your international audience will love that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that, folks. We're talking about college football here, so I have to say that we were introduced by none other than David Merriman Scott, who's the author of uh, over 10 books, including The New Rules of Marketing and PR, which is now in its sixth edition, and he mentioned Philip Stutz in that book. And that's one of two books that have had the biggest uh, impact on my career. And when... uh, he introduced me to you. You said, oh my gosh, a friend of his is a a friend of mine. And I was excited also to see that you interviewed him for your book. And there was something that he said in your book, which frankly needs to be carved in stone. And he said, the fundamental thing that has shifted in the past 10 years is that today the buyer is in charge. The seller is no longer in the driver's seat. And one other thing about David Merriman Scott that, it, amongst many that I find so interesting is that he does the most interesting analysis of political marketing, not politics, but how the candidates uh, market themselves. And it always reminds me of how political marketing does for marketing what, uh, unfortunately, combat does for medicine. Mm. it's it's really on the cutting edge. And I'm always so fascinated to see how politicians uh, market themselves in their campaigns. So it was very interesting to uh, be able to read your book and see how your uh, DNA as, as a marketer is that of a political person, and how that has become so
1: relevant now. Yeah, it really has. and And, you know, David's thesis that the buyer is in charge falls in line exactly uh and metaphorically with how we market in politics the voter is in charge and the funny thing douglas is that like my entire career that's all i've known i've known that the voter is in charge i've never thought the politician is in charge um you know, I'll give you an example. When we start a political campaign, uh, I sit down with the politician, and the first thing I say are, What are the 10 things you really want to talk about on this political campaign? And that person will write it all down. And then I go out and I do research and data and survey the voters in that particular district or state, um, and I find out what they care about. And then I find the top two or three issues where there's 100 percent alignment between what the candidate believes and what the voters believe. And that's all we talk about on the campaign. Nothing else. If the candidate says, hey, I want to talk about environmental issues and the voters don't care about it. We'll never talk about it. That's stupid. That's not how you win races. Mm-hmm. And so the reason I say that is because we must first understand what the voter cares about. It's the most important thing, and then you design your entire marketing strategy around that. And when I thought about it, like as I wrote the book, I went, you know, every I I interviewed over a hundred uh, CEOs for the book, and all of them love to talk about how how proud they are of their business. And I'm proud. I've owned multiple marketing companies. I own a brand company. I own a bunch of different things. I'm proud of that. But that may not be what my customer base cares about, my client base, right? They may want, something else out of me that's more important. And so I must tap into what they believe, what they think. I don't care if you're B2B or B2C, you must tap into what the customer or client believes first and find alignment in your beliefs with that. And those two things coming together are unstoppable and so powerful.
0: You know, we could almost end the interview right there. That is the most valuable advice And yet so many companies can't do it. They fall in love with their products, their services. And not only that, they don't even talk to their customers. They're not even out there trying to to draw the insights like you just described uh, when you're talking to voters. So even then, you don't go interview everyone in that district. You go and interview people who are likely to be voters. So right off the bat, you're getting more specific.
1: Why? Right. And, you know, like niche is important in business. Right. And mm-hmm. one of the most important things, especially in marketing, like if you're marketing your product or service and you are marketing it to a mass audience, you're an idiot. I'm <laughs> sorry. It's just what you are. That's a like, clinical term, I believe. It is. Yeah, I made it up. Um, but what what I'm saying is like this in politics. Uh we just did the Governor's race in New Hampshire last year uh Governor Sununu and in a he's a uh it was a very interesting race there were uh the environment was poor for his reelection but what we found was that independent women were cared about different things than older men okay. And the reason that's important is we had to have different messaging to different demographic groups based on what they cared about. Mm -hmm. And he went on and won re-election by eight points, even though every viable statistic said he was supposed to lose uh, based on the environment. And I I could go for hours on all, all the details of it. But the bottom line, you just have to trust me, is he was in an environment he should not have won. But because we tailored our message to what specific audiences cared about or voters cared about in various groups we, we you know bunched them all up, we I mean we, we separated them all and we gave them different messages. we were able to win. Yes, and, and that, I think uh, that's what we have to do in in corporate work as well corporate marketing.
0: Yeah, a lot of people call that segmentation. And that's why right. like even on an email list if you know companies have like one email list, <laughs> even if they can cut it in half and start to segment it, They start to get uh, better results. Now, I do have to say, though, Philip Stutz, uh, I've been in the agency business for 31 years and uh, started out at big agencies in in New York City and uh, read your book. And uh, you really uh, have some pretty awful things to say about agencies. And uh, (laughs) I guess the thing that bothered me is that you, you trash these agencies and you describe them uh, like it's a bad thing, no, I'm kidding. Um, some of the things you describe about agencies I was not aware of, frankly it was unbelievable and I clearly I'm not hanging around with the, the right um, or the wrong kind of agency people. but your book brought to mind a joke uh, that a lot of people may have heard, but it's about a guy who dies and goes to heaven and he's met at the Pearly Gates and uh, P- Saint Peter says, uh, "Listen, I'm going to let you check out heaven." And then I'm going to let you catch the elevator down, and you can uh, check out hell. And then you can decide which one you you want to spend eternity in. So he goes to heaven, and it's really nice, a lot of clouds, people playing harps, very peaceful, very nice. So he goes, all right, well, I'll go down, check out hell. He gets down to hell, and... uh, it's not a bunch of fire. It's a really great party, a really a lot of really interesting people. Um, obviously, a lot of agency people are there, uh, like me and, and my friends. And so then he goes back up to—but it, it, it's a fun time down there. And uh, the, he goes back to St. Peter and says, look, heaven's great, but, you know, I, I think I'd rather spend eternity at what seems like a really cool place. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend it in hell. So he goes to catch the elevator back down, the door's open, and it's burning. It's, it's, it's uh, eternal damnation. It's awful down there. And he goes to the devil, who apparently had actually been in the agency world, and he says, hey, wait a minute, this was a really cool party. You guys were really nice to me and everything. What, I, I, now I'm stuck with this. What's going on? And Satan says, oh, well, before you were a prospect, and now you're a client. <laughs> <laughs> so that, I think that was the right. only thing missing from your uh, from your book. But I, I wanted you to talk though briefly about w- when you got into. So you were a political marketer, and then you opened this other business marketing uh, firm, which has done real mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you you talked about it. you met a lot of business owners who had been you know burned by digital marketers, and they were convinced the whole industry was was fraudulent. What did you discover? And can you talk about the you know, the the frustrations that so many companies have that feel like they have to do something.
1: Well, we're in the most, you know, Douglas, we're in the most disruptive moment in human history. I mean, it, it, listen, uh, everything is being disrupted. I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. The economy is being disrupted right now. Um, you know, if you look at Silicon Valley, um, everything is being, uh, you know, it's completely disruptive. We're, you know, literally... Yeah, we're going to an AI society and all of these things and and people are scared to death of it. And, you know, listen, I understand this because I work in politics and in the last presidential campaign, that was the dis- most disruptive moment in human history. Whether you hate Donald Trump or you love Donald Trump, it was still the most disruptive moment in human history in politics ever. Right. And so. Uh, I've seen this. And so when I interviewed all these CEOs of the book, they go, I, I don't know. Like everything's changing. 10 years ago, I could run uh, TV ads, radio ads. I could do all these different things. But now, now I have like 20 different platforms I have to be on, and the ROI is not the same. And I'm still spending the same amount of money, and I'm completely lost. And I understand how that feels, right? Because I see this in politics. Like, So let me back up. The reason I think that political marketers are so innovative is because we have an election day every 2 years and if we are not innovating constantly then we're out of business we'll lose our clients uh, i won't have a company it's it's just a million different uh, aspects and it all comes back to i have a deadline i have a win or loss date if that makes sense and that forces innovation and businesses and business owners typically don't have that. They typically take their time. There's not urgency. They look at marketing as something they have to do. Like most business owners, hate marketers, right, Douglas? I mean, in all honesty, have you have you found that in your own experience?
0: Yes. Uh, the only ones they like are an emerging breed of what are called revenue marketers, where they are able to demonstrate that they know which levers to pull to generate revenue. Otherwise. Uh, most of them think of marketers as arts and crafts party planners who work in the make it pretty department. And there was even a study by the Fourna's Group about CEO trust in marketers, and only 20% of CEOs trusted marketers in that they thought that most marketers are too disengaged from the financial realities of the company they work for.
1: Right. But, you know, the other part of it, just this is my anecdotal side of it, but is like, They're like, I can't believe I have to spend money on marketing.
0: (laughs) You know, well, yeah, Yeah, I I would feel the same way about a cost rather than an investment,
1: right? And Darren Hardy, who ran uh, Success Magazine, basically said ninety percent of your business should be about marketing, right? And so, like, that's just basically where people are right now and the way they think. And the reason being is because the landscape changed, the marketing world changed. It got disrupted. These CEOs and these marketing directors or CMOs go okay we can't run things like we used to now they're being sold by a million people on a million different things there are literally marketing agencies that only deal with Amazon or Shopify like there's so many niches in the marketplace right now they don't know what to do there's a lack of trust and you know the bottom line is like you know my thought is in interviewing all these CEOs I kept coming back to the thing like we would never do some of the things that you're telling me in politics and political marketing. We would never, ever, ever do that. You know, one of them, and I'll I'll give this away, which is lie number one, and it's counterintuitive to what you think. Like, you think I'm going to say, target your audience a certain way? No, it is, don't sign a long-term contract with a marketing agency. Now, that sounds very strange, I get it. But the problem is, is that when Every one of these CEOs, over 100 from a Fortune 500 to a small business making 500000 in rev a year, they all got locked into these contracts that were 3 to 18 months long, and it was unbreakable. So the marketing agency was going to get paid whether they produced and delivered for the client or customer or not. And that is so crazy in my brain, Douglas. I can't understand it because in politics, every contract I've ever signed in over 20 years of work has been month to month. Mm-hmm. The politician could fire me at any moment that I'm not delivering. Now, what is my mindset if that is what I have to live by? If that's sort of the, my, you know, my mindset all the time is like either I'm innovating and delivering And winning, right? We think, in politics, we think of it as winning. And the same thing in business. Like, I I get so bogged down with businesses that like, well, what is our brand reputation? All this. I'm like, dude, it's like you're either converting or you're not. Either you're winning and growing or you're not. Like, it's very simple to me. And people get so bogged down in all the minutia. And the bottom line is, it comes down to the contract number one. Every marketing agency should not win until the business or the marketer, com- you know, the marketer, or the company produces with what they said they're going to do. And that's the way we set up our company. And the reason we're successful is people go, oh, OK, we take back control with you when we work with you. We're in control. You either produce or you're gone. And I'm like, yep, that's the way I do business. And let me tell you something. Everybody in my company, it, we're insane. Like we're constant. We have meetings every day on every client about how we're innovating for them. Does every marketing agency do that? Probably not. Why? Because they're sitting fat and happy with their long-term contract.
0: Right. And in that first uh, lie, uh, you talked about how some of them are actually getting clients to pay five-figure signing bonuses. And I, it was unbelievable with it to me. And then I thought, wait a minute, should I be doing that? No. How can I do that? I want to get in on some of that action. No, it was it was terrible. In fact, you know, we don't offer things that we wouldn't want to buy. So in other words, we're the same way. Where we'll say, look, you can leave at any time. It keeps us doing better work. And also, I mean, I wouldn't want to be locked into a a contract like that. So if there's any marketers out there. Uh, you know, be be careful uh, about doing that. I just wanted to read one excerpt from uh, the beginning of the book uh, to share with the uh, the listeners. You say, the vast majority of digital marketing firms overcharge, underdeliver, and work for their own needs rather than the needs of their clients. When I crossed over into the business world from the world of politics, the amount of sheer waste and lies I saw in the practices of competing digital marketing firms blew my mind. Not just that, It pissed me off! That anger is what led me to write this book. Watching clients and friends get, frankly, ripped off by digital marketing firms who preyed on their fear of economic disruption or their ignorance to technology advances in the digital marketing place that they couldn't keep up with, and then delivered zero ROI, made me furious. Over the course of the last three years, I've interviewed and discussed this topic with more than 100 CEOs from various levels of business, from small shops to Fortune 500 companies. They've all told me about the same experience with digital marketing firms They describe being frustrated, lost, feeling like they've been taken advantage of and fearful of the coming industry disruption for which they're not as prepared as they'd like to be. If this sounds familiar to you or, you, or you're nodding your head, in solidarity, then reading this book might be the most important thing you do for your business this year. So let's talk a bit about this concept that I, again, having come from the big agency world, you talk about how too many agencies treat a client's campaign as an advertising problem instead of what a true expert would do, which is create constant original content on various platforms and target specific audiences who are receptive to that message. And of course, that just warmed the cockles of my heart because it made me and I think a lot of listeners think, oh, maybe we are doing it the right way. But can you talk a bit more about how, you know, the, the idea of when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, so many agencies treat things like a advertising problem rather than the approach that you would take as a, a political consultant.
1: So I would tell you right now that everybody is selling the same thing. They say that put your put your uh, your cell phone in front of your face, and that's where all the eyeballs are. And we got to go to where the eyeballs are. And that is there's a a vague truth in that. Uh, People are on their phones. The question is, do they really give a damn about your ad or the way you're marketing? And I would tell you that they're saying that that's the tip of the spear, that everything's got to be digital right now. And I would tell you something completely different. I always like to understand my clients and go and and put a strategy together that is on the road less traveled, because I think there's more and a bigger and greater ROI there. And I would tell you that in a broad way, um, what you should be actually doing is building better relationships with your customers or clients, and then using them... As part of the mechanism that grows your business. And let's, you know, uh, if you've got a huge customer base and you just constantly market to them and build an amazing amount of loyalty, uh, you are going to utilize those customers to grow your business exponentially. My point is this if you're going to run a, you know, we love to make connected TV ads or connected digital ads. I love it. You know, I'm a big, big, big person on the connection that needs to be made. But uh, what are you most likely as a customer yourself to click on? An ad of a company you've never heard of or an ad you've, or a company you've heard of, but it's just putting an ad in front of you. Or is it a company that you have bought a product or service from before that all of a sudden puts an ad in front of you? I mean, it is a 10 times greater likelihood that you're going to click on the one that you know that you've bought from before and that you have a relationship with. And so what we try to do first is un- – again, I'm going to go back to this every time. I know you have this like one thing to remember. It's understanding that customer base, right? Yes. And so the I, I'm going to go preach, on a, Preach, brother. On a, I, I'm going on a tangent to this whole tight. And the tangent is this, if you are a marketer or a business owner listening right now, have you ever taken a data backed approach to your customers or your ideal or your ideal customers? Or is your marketing, what I like to call spraying and praying, you're just hoping people click on it and you want to talk about what you want to talk about. So like my challenge to marketers and business owners is this you've got to understand the customer and client base. So let me give you an example of how that works. Uh, We just completed a really uber cool case study. So everybody that works with us, Douglas, has to undertake a data analysis of their target market, whether it's their current customers, ideal customers. It could be B2B, it could be B2B2C. We have an exclusive partnership with the largest data collection company in America, and I paid a ton of money for that. But I did it so I could offer it at a discount for my clients, and then we could produce a 60-page report on everything about their ideal target market, customer, client, anything that you'd want to know. What they think, what they feel, the platforms they're on, the platforms uh, prioritized in order of where they go, what what their top values are in life, and what they don't like. I'm serious. I can find all of this out on anything. Right. Mm-hmm. It's for me as a marker. it's uber cool in the grand scheme of things. It's kind of scary. But regardless, we have it. Right. And so we I'll I'll give two examples. I can give the other one later. But the first one is this. So we were working with an Instagram influencer. That Instagram influencer had built an amazing audience, amazing, loyal customer base was selling products and services off of uh, the brand they had built. Uh, All on Instagram because Instagram is its own economy and all that. She came to us and said, I need to, I want to go into another platform and build out my audience even greater. And I'm going to go into Facebook. And I said, Well, hold on, let's figure out what the data tells us. So we were able to take all of her followers and track everything they did online for a month. And what we found was that her ideal. You know, followers, her ideal customers, because she sells products and services, that Facebook was the fourth ranked platform she should be advertising on. That Instagram, where she built her entire business, a a seven figure business, was not even the number one platform, that it was Pinterest. Hmm. She had never marketed on Pinterest or built out her products and services on Pinterest. That we found out that. When she does training seminars, when she sells products or services, that their her customer base uh, was ninety five percent female, but that they valued religion and traditions more than anything else. That was their number one value in life. She had never told her story of her faith in Christ to her audience. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, she said, I can make a deeper connection with my with my. Followers, my customers. She had never done that before. We also asked her, "Have you?" What we found was that her customer base: number one, faith, traditions, religious; number one, uh, value; number two, giving back to the community was her customer base.
0: And she, she didn't said, know she didn't have those insights into her own uh, followers.
1: No. So uh. she made she got she had stories. Yeah, but she not, had maybe had
0: a sense, but she had no idea the depth.
1: Correct. So then she says, "Philip, I've given five percent of all of my profits to charity for the last ten years." I said, "Have you ever told that story?" She said, "No." I went, "Well, now we have a marketing strategy. One, we're going to talk about how your faith brought your business um, and why you this you're selling these products and services because they ultimately help other people because you give a a percent your profits away, and we're going to do all of these things." And that was the strategy. Now. Let me ask you this if you're listening to this right now. Is that smarter than – or is it smarter to get up on stage like she does and talk about the products and services?
0: Oh, I know. It's, we know that. We know the answer. But yet – and I guarantee a lot of the listeners who are marketers, they're working at companies where they're saying, nope – got to talk about the product first that's what the customer wants and it was it was so you know reassuring and and interesting to see you in the book talk about things like um you should fall in love with your customers not your product and you know things about how uh, let me just quote at page 125. He said, as a business, you must first identify which customers want to consume your message, which customers would be receptive to your message, and which customers want the product or service you're selling. That's the starting point, not the product itself. It's not about inflating the ego so the marketing firm can cash a check. It's about ROI. Anything else is fraudulent. And it brought to mind a, a story from our my agency background where we had a... A client, and we included television advertising, but it was uh, what we did was we told stories about their customers. And I remember once saying to the client, how would you feel about never being in one of these commercials? Which a lot of their competitors did. You know, it's the business owner, as I like to say, weeing all over themselves. Wee this, wee that. Well, anyway, the campaign worked really well. And then after some number of years, we parted ways. What is the first thing they started doing? Showing the boss in all the commercials. Now... I want you to explain uh, the ego strokes that go on between marketers and their agencies, and and of course the 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 missing part of the equation is the customer.
1: Right. Well, I mean, this is so funny. And by the way, I. Kudos to you. No one has ever asked me this, um, but this part of the book. So I appreciate your uh, asking me this. But listen, I don't have any problem with a business owner being in the the marketing or the advertising at all. But what does the data say? Does the data tell us that the the product, what the services of the product or service, should be the lead, and the story of the owner should be second? You know, we, we represent a, and I've got an incredible story to tell you but on the same company, but we represent a very successful eight-figure supplement health food company. And the data tells us that the customer really just wants uh, great products. They want products that they believe in and that they feel are safe. They don't want to know about the owner. <laughs> right. So the owner is like, "I'm very lucky. The owner's like, "Yeah, cool I don't need to be like I don't need to be a celebrity in my company, and I love that like but by the way if if it's like the the, the example I just gave you, the Instagram influencer who speaks to audiences and sells products and services, she should be in her marketing and advertising because they are buying into her first. Yes. so it just depends, and my point is, is go where the data tells us. We need to go because it is always right. Always, it, you know what? I guess my frustration, Douglas, or anything else, is um, p- marketers that go, "Well, we have this great idea." Well, that's great. I, I have great ideas too. That's nice. Is it backed up by anything? Or are you just making it up in a brainstorm session? So I'm, I'm convinced that I will not make a decision unless it's backed up by data. Because my job, my job number one is to eliminate the risk of marketers and business owners as a marketer. My number one job is not to run out there, have a long-term contract, throw a bunch of ideas uh, that I make up against the wall and see what works. I do a lot of A-B testing, and it's all based on what the data tells us because that is going to grow even more. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, the, the, so if you got, I, I'll give you this one other case study we did, which is fascinating, but this, but this health food company, you, is that, is that okay?
0: Yeah, please. All right. So don't stop. You're on a roll.
1: I'm on a roll. All right. So this, this health food supplement company, was it over
0: when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor?
1: No. Hello. All right. So, um,
0: that was an animal house reference. I'm sorry. I know, please it was a go ahead. Reference.
1: Yes. So, um, and I'm old enough to remember that. So, uh. Anyway, I, uh, we work for this health food and supplement company. And one of the things that we do in our marketing agency, every client we have, we try to, because I come from politics, the most successful marketing out there today is comparative advertising. It's number one. It's not even close. And, you know, in politics, we have negative ads where we say, you know, this politician is bad and ours is good and all that stuff. I'm not. It's the same principle. It's not the same in action, right? Right. So I have developed a process that I believe comparative advertising is the most important thing any business owner could do right now or any marketer could do right now. Mm -hmm. But you have to do it in a way that doesn't offend the customer base. You have to do it in a way that literally endears the customer to you. And so what I, um, what I do is uh, we go out and find the data. So this supplement health food company, we found in the data a couple very unique things. We found out, first of all, 50% of their customer base, we took 150,000 customer records and tracked them for a month. It was crazy. We got so much data out of it. And we found that they were, 50% of them were vegetarian or vegan. Now, again, sounds obvious, but you wouldn't know it until you read the data. And then we also found, that their customer base hated soda. They hated soda. It was like that That they were, it was just like something they just do not believe in is the soda industry. Now, ooh, all of a sudden I've got a comparative ad idea. I can run ads, anti-soda ads that talk about how great this product is and go and, and pick a fight with the soda industry. What part of this guy's customer base is going to be offended by that? People who work for soda companies? <laughs> yeah, the yeah the the CEOs of the soda companies. Good. That's 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 perfect because they're not buying this uh, health food supplement and and food and all this stuff, right? Oh, no,
0: they're so, burning in hell with agency owners. But
1: please go so ahead. So we found ten different uh, points in the in the data that we wanted to test. So we tested ten ideas. Okay. At the end of the two month testing phase that we did for them. We found out that the number one positive ad we ran was the vegan vegetarian ads. By the way, that was the number one attribute that we found in the data. It's crazy, right? That, that ranked number two of all the ads we ran. Number one, comparison ad. The comparison ad was an anti-soda ad. It had nearly two times higher click-through rates than the vegan-vegetarian ad, which was the most popular positive ad we ran. It had 20% higher conversion rates. Why? Because people, customers, people like that, they they didn't like soda. They instantly made a connection. We're diving into a deep psychological understanding of their customer base. They don't like soda. And so they we ran these ads that said don't be like the soda industry buy this product that'll fuel your body like it was that's not offensive no
0: and neither so, were the uh, PC versus Mac TV commercials right. from 15 20 years ago and I, sh- I should add for the listeners' benefit there's an entire section on, on going negative not you know how to do negative political ads this this is a business book but you, you show examples of from the Political world where this beautifully applies to business marketing. And, you know, people say, why do politicians do negative ads? Well, they work, uh, as you've just shown. You can test all these things. But also, there are certain ways to go negative without seeming really all that negative. So I would say, you know, uh, please read at least that section of the book before you try and do something like that. It seems like most businesses really uh, don't want to do that. But also, because there's a lot of fear. But also, there's a whole section on preparing for crisis, why you need to prepare for a crisis. And uh, like Melissa Agnes uh, talked about in her book, uh, Crisis Ready, if you think you are not, uh, it's not possible for you to have a crisis, you're the number one person, <laughs> you're the number one company that needs to put a, a plan together, because it could be a competitor, it could be a Deranged customer. It could even be a, one of your own um, employees. But what I wanted to ask you about at this point is, I sorry to do this, but I want to get back to this issue of the product and as it relates to the agency. And trust me, I've seen this in my agency career, where it's not all the agency people's fault, but sometimes a, a prospect company will say, "What do you know about widgets? We want to hire a firm that's experts on." These widgets, whatever the product or category is. And I can understand some of that. And more than once, we've said, well, you know, we don't, we'll never know as much about your product as you do. But what we're going to do is help you communicate uh, what's important to your ideal customers. And you explain in the book a way that I hadn't realized uh, why this happens. But you say that so many agencies don't make any attempt to understand the client's customer, just like you're describing with this, all the work you did to understand your client's customer. I'm sure that they were amazed at what you were able to help them reveal about their own customers. But what you say is it's easier for agencies to try and understand the product and then come up with some sort of lame, untested, generalized approach. Rather than understanding the customer, I was wondering if you could just talk about that because it helped me understand why agencies do it. But I think that at times the, the clients, you know, they so much want to talk about their own products and they want people right. that know how to talk about their products and, and really not know how to do anything else.
1: Listen, I, I keep, I'm going to go back to this a million times. The, the, We're in a world now that we have lost all connections with other people, right? We're in a digital world. And again, everybody is telling you the same thing. You must. All the eyeballs are on the digital platforms. Go to the digital platforms. But it's not about that. It's a. You know, you said segmentation. I agree. I'm actually screen agnostic, and I'm. I, I like to say I'm omni-channel. I go. And you said eyeballs. in your
0: book, every marketer should be screen agnostic.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm screen agnostic because the data will tell me where the audience is in this particular supplement company. He, this guy had 35% of his audience was 55 or older. He had never marketed to them because he had always marketed um, on social platforms and he built his business that way, which is amazing. But you're leaving out 35% of 55 and older. Well, they and the data told us this, they still like receiving their marketing messages through mail. So you could do a mail uh uh, to their customer base, you could do a direct mail um, solicitation and overlay that exact same audience with digital platforms like Facebook, right? Because older audiences are on Facebook right now, mm-hmm. less a younger audience aren't. And you're going to get two bites of the apple on platforms that that particular group has never been marketed to. And like, the, oh my God, I didn't think about that, but the data told us this. So, but let me go back to this. It's about connection right? So I I know you do a lot of B2B work. Um, We've done a lot of B2B work, and I would tell you this. It works. I don't care if it's politicians, B2C, or B2B. Better connected stories is the most important thing you can do. In politics, we get this because our politicians go meet the voters. Mm. They go door to door. They walk in parades. They do town hall meetings. They get to know those voters, and then the voters spread their message. That's the whole point. Right, and I would
0: argue that those— politicians or those candidates have a better understanding of their voters than most companies do of their customers?
1: A hundred percent. And so what we try to do is we got to build the better connective story. The better connective story could be as the, you know, the owner is the lead or the product or the service is lead. It could be something else. Again, we go back to the data. But you can't, let's say you know, you're, you're trying to reach millions of customers. Okay, you can't go meet them all. But you can use video as a very as a proven force uh, to connect. And it's not boring video. It's not cheap video. It's video that makes connections with other people. That's why we use comparative advertising in our, in our corporate work. But that's also why we use tons of humor because all of that is making connections. Listen, mm-hmm. Google and HubSpot have told us seven in 10 B2B buyers watch a video in the decision-making process. Seven and 10 B2B buyers watch a video in the decision-making process. So if you're a B2B company and you're not using video as part of the way to connect with your clients or connect with your potential clients, you are losing – or you're leaving a ton of money on the table. And, like, I always say this is your moment. Like, we got to th- – this has to change. Stop just running stuff on digital platforms and hoping it works. Use data – connect with people the way they want to be connected with choose the right platforms based on what the data says and you can't lose in fact I tell you I tell people our clients this all the time if they follow our process we have an undefeated we're undefeated right now like with all of our clients some of them go haywire some of them don't want to be patient some of them want to go off on their own and don't want to listen to what we have to say and those clients typically don't work out. But right. the ones that follow the process, the right process of using data and connection, they they grow their business every time we've worked with them.
0: That's great. That's great. And uh, you know, I'm not surprised. But it just uh, when we started this interview, I had a, a full head of thick hair, and it's almost all pulled out by right now because <laughs> so much of your book and some of these things, it's like I, it, it pains me that companies are are having this this kind of trouble. But now. I want to talk about feelings, Philip. You talk about how marketing firms are terrified that like, authenticity will backfire. And it's not just the marketing firms, it's the, it's the client. It's the, the companies they're working for. Can you talk about the, the power of authenticity and why it's so feared? And frankly, when we're able to uh, take a more authentic human approach with a client, that we get so much better results and faster results.
1: Yeah. Here's one tactic in that regard that'll be fast and easy. The more vulnerable you are with your customer base, the more successful you'll be. Amen. That is, that is authenticity. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like, you talk about
0: how any kind of vulnerability is exactly what people want to see. And it proves you're human, and it really uh, resonates. We had a book on the podcast recently called uh, The Transparency Sale by Todd Capone, and he was talking about this research that had been done that affirmed exactly what you're talking about, about how in this digital age, people don't trust companies, they don't trust elected officials, there's just not a whole lot of trust. But when you're able to show uh, some vulnerability and uh, some uh, humanness, it's really um, rare And uh, very powerful. But is it a sense that, do you think that there's a fear that companies have that they might offend 1% of their customers or something like that?
1: Well, there's the mob mentality and there's, 10% on one side and 10% on the other. And they're always looking, you know, the mob runs, they scream, they yell, they shame. And then they move to the next thing because two minutes later, everything, you know, they've they've lost their, you know, they have no attention span. So they move to the next thing they're going to be outraged over. And that has created so much bland marketing, so much marketing that doesn't convert, so much marketing that doesn't do anything to help others. So vulnerability is not just about your story. It is about how you help others and make connections. I keep going back to this. Authenticity is about connection. And I, I will tell you this. Here, I'll be I'll, I'll be vulnerable right now, Douglas. I did not always get this. I was, uh, man, like seven, eight years ago, I was one of those people that was totally inside my head. And I thought nobody could see my flaws when – I was exposing myself to everybody and people were repelled by it.
0: But um, you said you I, don't have any flaws though, Philip. I'm confused.
1: Uh, <laughs> I got lots of them. <laughs> but my, you know, like in all honesty, I have health issues. I uh, I was a horrific uh not in a in a cheating sense. I was a horrible husband. I was not a good dad. I ran I treated people that worked for me terribly. And when I finally stopped doing that, and there's a, you know, you can listen to other podcasts I've been on. I talk about it everywhere. But when I finally stopped doing those things and I started saying, I'm not right. I I need help. I'm not good at this. How can I get better? That's when everything in my life completely changed. That's when people started coming to me. And I'm using this also as a metaphor because that's how marketing is. And, you know, I became successful when I dropped. The the facade, and I just said this is who I am, flaws and all, mm-hmm. and things. Uh, you know, with, that's how I wrote the book. That's how we I built this marketing agency that's grown twenty two thousand percent in four years with no outside investment and no debt. Uh, and it's true. Like I, it is a model. That's the model I follow, and so it's the model we follow for all of the companies we work with.
0: That's great. And you know, there was a uh, Dr. Philip Kotler, the father of modern marketing. He was episode. Oh,
1: Dr. Phil, I love him. <laughs> a different Dr. Oh. Food, but
0: but I'll go with that yeah he <laughs> hit his book uh, marketing 4.0 he was he they even a couple of years ago they were talking about how you really need to check the vulnerability box if you're going to get anywhere uh, with customers now it's so uh, candid and even in sales you know there's the concept of I'm okay. You're okay. That sort of uh, transactional analysis that we talked about in Brad McDonald's recent episode with his book about the art and skill of sales psychology. And there's this concept called going not okay in a sales call. And that's where you might say, look, before we get started, there's a couple things I hate having to ask about. Can you remind me if I forget to ask? And it's about budget or you know, whatever you're going to do. But right off the bat, it's like, uh, you know, the concept of when you give a talk, you, you, the more you understand that the people that you're speaking to, they're actually rooting for you. <laughs> they, they want you to succeed. So, okay, the, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about to, to help folks understand is this concept of political marketers, they have an end date. It's called election day. And it it forces uh, some clarity into what you're doing, so you can practice the exclu- art of exclusion very effectively, where you are throwing out all these things like you've talked about that don't work very well. And I think that more companies, uh, and certainly more marketers, could could try to get their companies to articulate, or agency people, what a win looks like. What is it? What What is that goal? Because I. I run into so many companies that are saying, well, we just want to get our name out there. And that drives me nuts because I know we're not going to be successful with them because we can't figure out what winning is. And I was wondering if you'd explain this concept that might be helpful for folks of try and think about a conversion first and then branding, not branding first.
1: Right. Well, it could be. Your branding has to be right, right? Um, But the people that say you need to run... It's your basic branding needs to be right first, right? doesn't mean you go out and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on branding first. Mm -hmm. Uh, Listen, let me me back up and say this. So there was, uh, and this gives you a little context into how my brain works. There was um, a congressional race in Utah last year, and it was uh, Mia Love, uh, I think it was Utah Congressional District 4. Mia Love was this Republican uh, congresswoman. She ran and was being challenged by a Democrat named Ben McAdams. Okay, There were 269,234 votes cast in that race. It came down to 694 votes. And Ben McAdams beat Mia Love by 694 votes out of 269,232 votes. So my question... That, so that, that's crazy, right? Like how close that is. What yeah, I, if think, I, w- I think
0: your vote matters too. There were several instances right. in the book where it's like, if you ever thought your vote didn't matter, here's another story. But it's right. beside so, the point. Yeah.
1: No, no, it's okay. So what if I uh, – if you're listening to this podcast right now, replace those two candidates with your company and your number one competitor. And then what if I told you – because that particular race lasted five months. What if I told you you get five months? And after five months, there would be two hundred sixty nine thousand two hundred and thirty. I said 232, I think it's 234, 234 customer transactions. What if I told you that, the, that it would come down to whether you or your competitor had the most, came down to 694 transactions, and the one that came with the most is number one in the marketplace, and the one that finished second is out of business forever, that's what i deal with every day. and so in over 20 years i've had over 1200 election wins. in the last 3 years we've had 206 victories out of 245 races. so th- that's the stakes. either you win or you die in our business. i'm out of business if i don't win more than I, if i if i don't win more than i lose. if i like and here's a gr- crazy thing douglas there is a public database it's called the federal election commission or there are state databases if we work on state races that will tell you what races i'm working on and how much is spent so everything i do is public record so my competitors my marketing competitors that are trying to get clients out from me you know win them over me they know whether i win or lose they know <laughs> everything about me and i know everything about them What do they do if I lose more than I win? They They don't hire you. They will No, my competitors will use it in pitches against me. They will cut my legs out from under me. They will savage me. They will do whatever. And I won't be in business very long. Mm -hmm. And so I have to think constantly of innovating and winning. Mm -hmm. And that's what we brought to the corporate side because I didn't see that. And what drove me nuts to write this book was like I kept seeing marketing agencies that were slow rolling their clients – Mm-hmm. They were like, "Hey, we did a bunch of conference calls this week. Look, we sent you a report. We did six conference calls. We, you know, we t- we uh, took your social media and we updated it six times. Like, it's nothing to do with anything. Yeah, did it convert customers? Did it help you get clients? How did it produce an ROI? What's the result? What's the bottom line? And so uh, that's one of my big frustrations, I guess."
0: Yeah, and I guess as an agency guy, I would also lay a little bit of the blame at the companies who are not being clear with what their goals are and, and their expectations. But there's many reasons why it can become uh, you know, fraught with frustration and, and uh, confusion. So, Philip, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you
1: hope it would be? Really, I think it is this. You must understand your customer or client more than anything else. And that is the starting point, right? Whether you want to run a successful marketing campaign or not. Uh, and and the first step for me, the way I do it is I must understand the data, what the data tells me about that customer or client. Because what the customer and client tell you is different than what they do. Yes. What they say is different than what they do. I want to know what they do. Mm-hmm. So I track what they do. And that And that gives me all the insights I need to develop a strategy and the strategy then goes out and tests all the concepts. And then the concepts, we find the ones that work the best and we optimize for what we know works. All of that eliminates the risk from the business owner. It all eliminates risk. Marketing should eliminate risk and produce an ROI. That is the two things that they should do for every business. And so that's what I beg people is step one, know what your customer or client base, what they do and the way they think and the, what they want. And you must know that first.
0: Yes. And that's why at the beginning of the interview, I said, you know, we could almost end it there (laughs) because I hammered that pretty early on, but it's uh, it's so clear. And yet I, 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 I'm never going to run out of ways trying to help Companies understand that one thing, the key is understanding your customers. So, Philip, what books have inspired your work and interesting career?
1: Uh, well, I tell you, um, there's a book called "Driven to Distraction" by Ned Halliwell. and I'm so ADD that it is a that it's a very that is a very powerful book for me. Mm. It basically helped me understand how my brain works and. It'll help you understand how your brain works, right? it's it's uh, it basically helps you know, kind of lay out when your brain is on fire, when you need to take breaks, when you need to do stimulating things because you're tired, and all of those things. And so when when I understood the way my brain really worked, I was able to work, and that's what the whole book is about, driven to distraction, is how we're distracted by all the platforms right now. But when I was doing that, I was able to literally transform my schedule every day to optimize every second in a way that keeps my brain engaged uh, through that 10 to 12 hour period that I'm working. So that book was unbelievably helpful to me. Uh, right now, I'm reading... Uh, Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google, wrote a book called Billion Dollar, billion with a B, Billion Dollar Coach. And it's about his coach. Who passed away a couple of years ago, but he was Steve Jobs' coach. He was the coach to Zuckerberg, I think, and Sheryl Sandberg, and and it is that I, I love reading about that because I like reading about how to be a better. I like being a CEO, so I love reading about being a better CEO. And that book is really, really, really good right now.
0: Oh wow, that sounds very interesting. As is uh, driven to distraction. Bob, have to check out both of those. Yeah. So, Philip, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book, and make sure to. Include that nice offer you can that you have in the oh, book. Oh, sure.
1: So you can go to philipstutz.com. I'm sure Douglas, you'll put that in the show notes how to spell thy name. I shall. Um, but uh, all my you know, you can uh, email me there, you can connect with me on socials and all that. Listen, I the offer is this, and we put this in the book, uh, but I'll offer it to your audience, which is we uh, I was like, how can I? I'm a big person on serve serving others, and so I. We do a really good job, I think, in our company of helping serve our team members, our employees. We do – I mean we could do 10 episodes, ten podcasts on how we serve our clients outside of their marketing and how we get to know them and how we treat them and how we look at them right. We try to find out what they care about, mm-hmm. um, and then we deliver on it. And then one of the things I said was how do I help – is there a way to help and serve people that aren't even clients? And so we created a five-minute marketing audit. It's free. does not cost you anything. You go – Fill out a, a, fi- a five-minute form on your publicly available digital footprint. And you go to philipstutz.com slash audit to fill it out. And my team will spend two or three business days poring over your publicly available digital footprint of your company. And we'll produce a seven-to-nine-page report that tells you what you're doing right and what you can improve. And not only that, uh, we'll also do a 30-minute consultation on the report when we deliver it. And walk it through and answer any of your questions. If you think that's amazing and you want to work with us, great. but that is free. You do not have to hire us. Uh, in fact, ninety percent of the people, the hundreds and hundreds of people have taken it have not hired us. They've taken it and utilized it in their businesses to grow. That's cool with me too. And so that that offer is out there um, for anybody that wants it.
0: That is very generous, and we will make sure to include a link to that in your episodes. Uh, show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And we'll include your LinkedIn profile and your Twitter and all the other links. And I hope that uh, the listeners will use that opportunity to thank you for being on the podcast. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found right now by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. Hey,
1: Douglas, can I say one thing? I just want to say the reason I was so honored that you invited me on the podcast is you sort of embody all the things that I preach and you serve an incredible audience. Your your audience is unbelievable. And like everything I just talked about, you've built this connection with your audience. You may not know them, but they are connected to you and you serve them first. You, I mean, you're not making any money on this thing. And I can affirm that, but you get a lot out of it because you're helping other people. And I love that mission. I love the service that you give, and it's really an honor to be on. So really, thank you. Uh, Pleasure is really all mine.
0: Whoa, Philip, thank you so much. I'm a little embarrassed, but I really appreciate your kind words, and the truth be told is I love doing this podcast, and I love uh, learning and being able to talk to really smart authors like yourself. And the thing that really inspires me is to hear from the listeners who thank me for it and who talk about how they've been helped and how they've been inspired by it. So I'm good for another 250 episodes at least. So enough about me. Let's start wrapping up. The name of the book is Fire Them Now, The Seven Lies Digital Marketers Sell and the Truth About Political Strategies That Help Businesses Win. The author is Philip Stutz. Philip, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. And that closes the book on episode 234 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdette. Special thanks to our sponsor Blinkist. To support the Marketing Book Podcast and start your free Blinkist trial or get 20% off your yearly plan, visit blinkist.com slash marketingbook. Podcast, or just click on the link at marketingbookpodcast.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Vern Oakley to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Leadership in Focus, Bringing Out Your Best on Camera. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. I knew I liked you when you said one of your favorite movies is Tommy Boy. (laughs) You had me at Tommy Boy.
1: This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got
0: the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a Coco Mocha Signature Latte. Or make them swoon with a Strawberry Dragon Fruit Dunkin' Refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.